0: Hello everyone. I'm Dr. Jordan B. Peterson. I'm the author of three books, Maps of Meaning, 12 Rules for Life and Beyond Order, 12 More Rules for Life. I've been asked by the Honourable Preston Manning to say a few words about our nation's response to COVID. So let's lay out what happened. We faced an unknown threat of indeterminate magnitude. So a new disease made itself manifest on the horizon and we had no way of calibrating the severity of the illness. We panicked. We then used the panic to justify the imposition of a tyranny that was modeled for us by an authoritarian state. Led by the Chinese Communist Party. So in our foolish panic. We abdicated our political responsibility and we copied the first mover, which was essentially communist China. How did we abdicate our political responsibility? Well, we turned over the necessity to consider a multiplicity of options to hypothetical experts on the public health front. And I would say that was an abdication of responsibility because, first of all, we turned those public health experts into political figures having to adjudicate between a number of competing ethical claims and we also our political leaders and ourselves as citizens allowed our responsibility to be usurped by these experts in a time of hypothetical crisis. We then manipulated public opinion in the most egregious possible manner using a collusion between corporation primarily the the pharmaceutical industry, government, and media, who all colluded together to use fear to impose tyranny. And we did that not only by manipulating public opinion through the media but by using opinion polls to sample that frightened public opinion to justify the imposition of restrictions on our basic rights as a consequence of response to that public opinion, and then to lie in the aftermath of that and claim that that was all based on science. All of that was a lie, as I know full well from talking to people who were advising political figures, including conservative political figures, during the epidemic itself. We suspended our basic rights, including the rights to travel, the freedom of association, The right to bodily integrity and there's barely a more fundamental right than that and the right to freedom of speech Uh, we did the latter particularly by persecuting people who dared to say anything against the panicked response to the hypothetical covid epidemic here's a rule of thumb for everyone to consider in the future imagine there's a crisis i suppose now we believe the next one is going to be on the climate front imagine that Your response to that crisis is a kind of paralytic fear. Then imagine that you use that fear to justify the imposition of any tyranny you feel merited, and you do so while accruing power to yourself. Well, you've just demonstrated that you are not the right leader for that crisis. That's for sure. So what else did we do? We did untold economic damage, which has not yet unfolded, to the supply chain around the world. We're going to starve tens of millions of people as a consequence of that and put a lot more people into absolute poverty as a consequence of increased energy and food prices. We have no idea what we did on the inflationary front yet. Uh, We've seen banks begin to fail in the United States and we have no idea where that's going to end. So um, that was all a part and parcel of the panicked response. We've damaged the population's faith in both public health and science for at least a generation, maybe more, because if I was a young person, looking back at what happened over the last three years, um, I would certainly be disinclined to trust either experts or politicians again in my life. And the damage to public health, I suspect the consequences of that as it unfolds will be that more people will die because they're now afraid of such things as vaccines, that would have died if we would have just followed Sweden's example, for example, for for instance, and left people the hell alone. I don't know how many of you who are listening know this, but Sweden now has the least excess deaths in Europe. And so the Swedish model, which did involve vaccines by the way, but no lockdowns and certainly no mask mandates. We lied through our teeth about masks. There's no evidence whatsoever from randomized controlled trials, which are the only form of trial that matter we lied through our teeth about the utility of masks so that we could look like we were doing something and that's on you politicians who pushed that um, we also circumvented the scientific process while approving the vaccines and we're going to pay a big price for that and we're certainly not done paying that um, and then i would say to the conservatives who are listening we failed as conservatives uh, because we did not abide by or attend to the law of unintended consequences, right? We had a crisis of unmeasured magnitude. That was the new illness. We put in incredibly restrictive policies to hypothetically cope with it. We lied about the fact that those policies were justified by science. We 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 wreaked untold economic havoc on our society. We hurt the educational opportunities of children, and we failed to attend to the fact that the reaction to a crisis can produce a worse crisis than the crisis itself. So all things considered, it's hard for me to see how we could have possibly, had we done nothing at all in the face of this so-called pandemic, things would have turned out better than they did. So I think there's ample room for all of us as citizens And especially those of us who were leaders uh, during this time to be as ashamed of ourselves as we possibly could. And perhaps what you could remember from this particular talk is that in our panicked idiocy, we copied one of the most authoritarian societies that's ever existed on the planet. And that would be the Chinese Communist Party. So pretty damn pathetic, all things considered. We should seriously be ashamed of ourselves. Thank you very much for the opportunity to share those thoughts with you.
1: Wow. I like that intro. Good evening, everybody. It's Chris here from the Whistle Stop Cafe in Mary, Alberta. Uh, I am also the Chris in the Chris and Carrie show. Uh, and I'm also the CEO of the Alberta Prosperity Project. Uh, tonight's podcast with Sean Buckley, with the uh, from the NCI, the National Citizens Inquiry, is uh, I, I think it's pretty important. For those of you that followed the NCI, you probably heard a lot of testimony from a lot of people, and much of that testimony was very moving. There was oftentimes the, the three days that I was attending in Red Deer. Um, I don't think there was an hour that went by without some eyes leaking. So, yeah, I put the link up in the intro to this and uh, take some time and go and watch some of the testimony when you have a minute. Not right now, because we're going to have Sean Buckley on. Anyhow, also uh, September 30th, which means it is Truth and Reconciliation Day. Now, I'm very controversial and I have very controversial opinions about Truth and Reconciliation Day. And the first thing that is very controversial about me is that I want the truth. Not political pandering, not weaponizing of uh, certain folks' uh, trials and tribulation. I want the truth. And only when we have the truth can we start doing things to make the world better or to fix a problem. If we're going to fix a problem, we have to first identify it and then fix it. Unfortunately, our politicians and the what I often refer to as the woke left mob—they uh, use things like this to advance their own agendas. They use the the trials and tribulations that our indigenous brothers and sisters went through in days gone by as a method uh, of bringing people down. Now, and I don't agree with that. So because it is Truth and Reconciliation Day, I would like to uh, recognize that our, our Indigenous brothers and sisters, you know, they they got a pretty, they had a pretty rough go and people weren't often fair with them. Um, and so I suppose there there is some reconciliation that has to happen. But uh, I think before we do that, we need to know the truth about what happened. And that's a great segue into tonight's podcast about the National Citizens Inquiry with uh, Sean Buckley. So for those of you that don't know, the National Citizens Inquiry was uh, uh, a group that went across Canada and they heard testimony, sworn testimony from hundreds of people, experts, civilians, the like, um, regarding what they observed or what happened to them throughout the pandemic and the restrictions that were a result of the pandemic. Um, they've released their interim report and it's scathing. I mean, what we saw happen should never have happened. And and as Jordan Peterson said, uh, it's become apparent now that if we didn't do anything at all, the outcome would have been better than what we did. And that's the truth, and there's certainly going to be some reconciliation for that coming up shortly. Anyhow, um, yeah. So let's uh, let's bring on Sean Buckley and uh, get on with it. Sean,
2: Chris, how are, how are you?
1: I'm doing well. It appears as though you survived your uh, your your visit to the Whistle Stop Cafe last night.
2: Yeah, well, I, I have to say both my wife and I really enjoyed seeing your cafe and, and visiting. And so if you don't mind me plugging your cafe, Um oh, absolutely think, well, everyone, everyone in central Alberta should, you know, make the pilgrimage. And it seemed that Friday night is, is a good night to go, that you've got a group that comes in from all around. Um, and I just really liked the atmosphere and some of the people I met. So, and obviously the food was good. So thank you for your hospitality, Chris. That was really lovely.
1: My pleasure. My pleasure. It was, it was great to have you and the missus there. And uh, it's 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 really interesting over the last three years, there's been more times than I can count where I've said to random customers, like, hey, you know who that is over there? You know who that is? And then I explain it's, uh, you know, the, you were the uh, the chair of the uh, the NCI, um, I've had all sorts of interesting and somewhat famous people show up there just, uh, just for a burger. So yeah, it was, it was, it's a pretty neat, 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 place to have, and we certainly appreciate your business. And even more than that, we appreciate what you've been doing to try and get some truth out to the, to the world really about what happened over the last, is it almost four years? It's almost four years now. Over the last three years anyway.
2: Yeah, well, actually, uh, yeah, it's quite, time flies when you're experiencing tyranny, I guess. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah it,
1: it sure does. Sometimes it crawls and then sometimes it's, it goes so fast, it seems like the chain's only on your door for eight weeks.
2: Yeah, you so, know, like I think we're only, you know, what, 19, little over 19 months from the trucker convoy being shut down. Man, and it feels like a lifetime. Yeah, and I, I think that if we hadn't had the trucker convoy, we likely would have been locked down last winter. So, I agree. I agree. Yeah, we really we really owe the truckers a debt of gratitude. It was it's just incredible what they've done for us. Absolutely, and uh, let's not forget,
1: you know, it was 19 months since the convoy was shut down. It's about the same since the Coots demonstration was shut down, and there are four men that are still in remand uh, awaiting trial for charges resulting from that demonstration. So these now, guys are, they are innocent, how, proven guilty and they're still in jail.
2: I, you know, I find that just absolutely outrageous because we, you know, we've got the contact, sorry I moved the wrong way. We've got the, the context of, you know, no shots are fired. I know there's talk about the firearms being found we actually know actual violence anywhere. You know, I, I've practiced a lot of criminal law in my day. I've likely easily run over a thousand trials in my career. Wait a and minute. Are you, you're a lawyer? A constitutional lawyer. Ah, uh, yes. And I'm sorry. That, I, said that because I forgot to introduce you properly. Yeah, with expertise in food and drug regulation. About half of my practice has been <clears throat> involved with dealing with Health Canada and trying to keep our natural health products on the market. But the point I was trying to make is, is you know, I can have somebody facing charges of first degree murder, and if they don't have much of a record, I, I can get them out on bail. Like I I cannot get my head around these people still being held in custody pending trial. Yeah, yeah, and it,
1: it's not the the facts don't support what's happening. The only thing that I can come up with is that. We we really we have some activist judges in this province and their political biases shine through in their rulings. And I know, you know, every, we're, they're all human and it's bound to happen, but it seems like there's less interest in the scales of justice and more interest in in social license nowadays than than anything else. But that's a I suppose that's I like another the...
2: two hour podcast right there. I don't want to comment on, on judge motivations. I've just seen that I'm quite surprised, you know, on the, the facts as I understand them, that these four gentlemen are in custody pending trial. Like I'm very surprised about that. Um, it doesn't happen often, does it? Well, <clears throat> I, I don't think their trials are even booked till next year. Am I, am I right about that? That's correct. Yeah. That's so correct. yeah, no, I, It's it's just shocking, but the whole COVID experience with the courts has been shocking. Mm -hmm. I mean, here we've had the largest intrusion of government in our lifetime, you know, but for the Aboriginal population, and I'll I'll have to just talk about the Bill of Rights briefly because this is Truth and Reconciliation Day. But we've had the largest intrusion of government into our lives. I mean, literally where we're under house arrest and losing rights and freedoms, left and right. And Chris, I would have expected, you know, here we are three years later for there to be court decision after court decision, after court decision saying you broke this charter, right? This was not justified. And, you know, here's what you can't do going forward, but I can't point you to a single case anywhere in Canada, a single case that would put a break on any level of government going forward from doing the exact same thing that mm-hmm. they did before. And you know what happens when somebody or some institution is allowed to bully you, and nothing, and there's no break and there's no repercussions, they go further the next time. That's right. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I'm not sure what's up with that, but I, you know, I, I think it was James Kitchen when he was testifying at the National Citizens Inquiry was saying, you know. The Charter of Rights and Freedoms is, is absolutely dead and the shortest lived constitutional document in the history of the world, literally, because it it's, you know, absolutely meaningless. I I won't even go into Sheila Lewis. Let me just segue a little bit in because this is um, Truth and Reconciliation Day mm-hmm. is, um, I don't know, it's probably about 15 years ago. <clears throat> And on the Poundmaker Reserve, they were having a, a historical reenactment. It was the 100-year anniversary of when the Army was sent to North Battleford to break up into thirds and then go and basically annihilate three different groups of, of Aboriginals, and one of them being the, the Poundmaker um, tribe. And so they um, the Army failed on that because they were alerted Um, Before the army arrived, they went up into the hills and they watched the army at night encircle the camp and then basically bomb and gadling gun, you know, their encampment. And then the army realized there was no one there and a battle ensued and the army lost. And the army ended up surrendering and, and saying to Poundmaker, like, don't kill us. Totally different culture. Like Poundmaker, like, what are you talking about? Like, get your wounded and dead and go and his reward was being hung. But what I learned at that that, um, that gathering, I'd been invited just to give some constitutional advice with regards to one of the treaties, but they had the army there and the RCMP there to help reenact the battle. And as always happens, elders speak at these things. And I didn't know that until the Bill of Rights that Diefenbaker brought in, that basically they were confined to the reserves and they could only leave the reserve if they had written permission of an Indian agent. That's right. And you know that lasted till the Bill of Rights. And in fact, South Africa came to Canada before apartheid to see how it's done and learned from us. And here we're taught in school about how good we are and how free we are as a nation. Um, and then you know we find out that that's not necessarily the case. And and we need to be taught this history. And we need to be ashamed of it so that we can not do it again and understand that we're no different, that awful things can happen. But I, I think we've got that understanding writ large now because of the last three years that some pretty awful things can happen.
1: You know, nothing, it seems like nothing changes throughout history. There's times where these atrocities happen and they only happen because people fail to speak out, right? I mean, back then, if people had bothered to stand up and say, well, you know, sure this is the law but this law is wrong this is wrong and we need to change it. it things would have been differently but they didn't you know they we when i say we i mean society as a whole co- collectively stood by and let the tyranny happen until you know until there was something had to give and then you know, and, th- and things changed and you know i brought i brought this up actually i brought it up a couple times and i always get hate mail when i do we, we did that with the COVID restrictions too. We knew it was wrong. We knew what was happening was wrong. We knew that the intrusions on our rights were wrong and people just sat by, myself included. I mean, for the first year of this, I did all the boneheaded masking and bulletproof glass in the restaurant and hand sanitizer and distancing and all that malarkey. Just even though I knew it was wrong uh, and I didn't speak up until... Until I was backed into a corner and I was, you know, my finances said either fight or flight and I chose to fight. So really, you know, what we've done now is not any different than what we did 80 years ago. It's not anything different than we did 3000 years ago. It's the same cycle. And I find it very surprising that as a species, we, we think we're so enlightened, but we we literally we we live out the same templates of the past over and over and over again and uh, pretend that we're better than we were 500 years ago so that's my little spiel
2: well yeah now let's not forget though that you know history also has a lot of really you know good parts and
0: you know including
2: what you and I have lived for most of our lifetime you know the our failing being is is you know we didn't understand because we were deliberately weren't taught we didn't understand that as citizens, we had to be deeply involved in all of our institutions, that we had a, a civic duty to be involved. And because we were not taught that and didn't involve ourselves, we've allowed our institutions to be unduly influenced by small groups of people with literally ill intent, like policies that you and I will, you know, are going to and are experiencing as completely destructive. But, you know, it's interesting because we've just lived, you know, we hear terms like mass psychosis, where it was absolutely unbelievable, wasn't it, how all the media fell in line, how all the politicians fell in line? I mean, we have a few outliers, but which political party in federally or in any province stood against maybe even vaccinating at all, let alone mandates, you know, that didn't support masking and and didn't mask themselves. Like we didn't have one outlier, you know, until in Alberta we had Premier Daniel Smith make comments and just get annihilated by the mainstream media. But, you know, that kind of tendency we have as human beings to fall in line with the narrative is is actually could be something really dangerous going forward when the narrative switches i mean if they can't distract us with a war or economic collapse or something to hide the consequences of what happened chris i'm actually worried going forward that you know the public opinion is going to shift in such a significant way that you know we're all going to be blinded with with this new reality and act in a way that that we will regret going forward because we really need to set the tone um you know and how we deal with this in you know hopefully a peaceful and rule of law way once we have our institutions back.
1: Absolutely. So, you know, you mentioned none of the parties stood against this. And I have a theory about that. When, when, when the politicians or wannabe politicians are all taking their talking points from the same place, and that is the ministry of truth, um, there is no debate. It's settled. Like, this is just the way it is. The, the science is settled. It's safe and effective. Don't question it. If you question it, we're going to ostracize you and, and use the media to destroy you, right? So it's, it's not surprising that it went that way. And then throughout all of this, I'm sure you, you, you know this as well, uh, Canada formed a department called the Department of, uh, oh my goodness, Behavioral Sciences. Oh, I think Sean's frozen or very, very quiet? Or is it me? Just throw up in the comments there, folks, if you can still hear me. We'll see, I'll try bringing Sean back on. Ah, it appears as though Sean is having some technical difficulties or we're being censored because apparently, Uh, The Liberal government removed some of the exclusions to bill, uh, what was it, C10 or whatever, the internet, uh, as internet just went down. Um, uh, The the CRTC is now regulating the internet. And apparently, uh, the exclusions for podcasters were removed from, from the bill before it was passed. So now the Liberal government wants to monitor and regulate the things that maybe people like me or you do on your uh, podcast or what they say, if we don't maybe say enough about our country or maybe acknowledge an, an, a group of people, uh, we have the potential to get in trouble or or shut down by the CRTC. So we'll see how that plays out. Anyway, uh, while we're waiting for Sean's internet to go or to get back online, if, if it does, I uh, just wanted to explain to you guys again what we're going to be talking about tonight. We've already started talking about it. Uh, the, the The National Citizens Inquiry went across Canada and they got sworn testimony from people just like me and also people not like me, people who are experts in their fields, virology, uh, immunology, pathology, all those types of things. They had uh, dozens of uh, world-renowned doctors and scientists testify before the commissioners as to what they observed and what their their professional opinions were of what happened and what should have happened and what we need to do going forward so the commissioners prepared a report and uh, an interim report and they have some recommendations as to what governments across the country should what the governments across the country should do in their opinion based on the testimony they heard and the one thing that uh i i found not surprising was they said we need to have a full stop on the covid vaccinations scary right isn't that what saved us it wasn't the 80% that got us back to normal again well actually it wasn't it was a bunch of truckers driving to ottawa that got us back to normal but uh that that's what they say the Oh, seems like Sean is back. You're back. That was the, that was
2: the strangest thing. Sorry, Chris. Just uh you, you stalled and then uh, I started spinning and yet we've got internet, so I I'm not sure what happened. Now you must had have been just, a
1: directed energy weapon. Must have been. That's the only that's the only thing it
2: could be. Right. Well, let's not go there. But you had been talking about kind of um, we were talking about how no political party had really stood up and um, you know, I, I think that politicians and, and, you know, rightfully so for the third of the population, I don't, I doubt that it's any more that takes the mainstream media seriously. I mean, the mainstream media is a force to be reckoned with isn't it Like all politicians it is if anyone if anyone had stood up it's like kissing your career goodbye although that wasn't an excuse for not standing up and and I think many are going to feel very differently about it as events unfold. but um, you know be that as it as it may I'm wondering if politicians overestimate now the value of the mainstream media. It's interesting, I was at a, I was lecturing at at a group in Morinville a week ago, and there's like four or five hundred people there, and I asked, uh, and I I was also lecturing in Calgary earlier the week, and asked the same question, and I got the same response both times, but I asked people, put up your hand if you know somebody in your circle who died of COVID-19, and like a few hands would go up. And then I, I had asked, well, put up your hand if you know somebody who died of the vaccine and pretty well every hand went up. And now this is absolutely contrary to the mainstream media, but you know people that are attending these types of meetings are now politically motivated. And I'm wondering if the politicians might be miss, um, I guess, underestimating or misconstruing actually what a sizable portion of the of the population thinks. Because I think the people that think like you and me are much, much bigger than they uh, they think.
1: Well, and you, they're starting to realize that. And it was apparent in the last couple of years here in Alberta. We had people say things, uh, running for political office, saying things like the unvaccinated were the most discriminated uh, class in history in the last however many years that's a very brave and and ballsy Mm -hmm. thing to say because then of course the woke left mob is going to go on the attack and say how dare you blah 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 but it it was true that was the truth and the reason why uh, that was daniel smith the reason why she could say that and become the premier of this province was because we know that to be true right Regardless of what the media says, we know that. So the media said, "Don't, don't vote for her. She's going to sell your hospitals, and you're not going to be have free health care anymore." We knew differently, and we elected her anyway. So the politicians are. I think they're starting to realize that they can actually speak the truth, and they can be, and they can do it with confidence because we've uh, we've kind of formed this this parade of people that are are. Uh, um, our, our eyes are open to the truth and when we hear it we're willing to support those people so I, that's that's a, a step in the right direction anyway but mm-hmm. for the most part like you look at our federal politicians and they kind of dip their toes in the waters of the convoy and they kind of dip their toes in in being empathetic for people that lost their job because of the vaccine mandates but they really didn't do a damn thing nothing and they're just Continuing on, you know, as if nothing happened. But unfortunately for for our federal politicians, Alberta, uh, we're really paying attention and we're standing up for ourselves in a way that we haven't never really done before. And uh, if those politicians don't pay attention and start listening to our voices, uh, they might just find that they no longer have uh, the cash cow of the West to rely on. But anyhow, that's another story. Yeah. So tonight... I wanted to talk about, uh, the interim report and what, uh, how that came about, what the NCI did, like what the NCI did, how the interim report was formulated and what it says and, and what, what the NCI is recommending our government to do. And then after that, I also want to talk about the natural health products battles mm-hmm. that you've been having for well before any of the, the COVID stuff, right? Cause you've been fighting for people's right to health for a long time. Am I correct? Yeah, working on thirty years. So there we go. So there's lots to talk about. So if you don't mind, Sean, uh, can you just uh, g- give folks a quick rundown on what the NCI, uh, w- w- what it did, um, how the con- commissioners came up with that report, and what the
2: report says? Yeah. So for for those in your audience that aren't familiar with the National Citizens Inquiry, group of citizens just got together with the idea of holding a citizen run and a citizen funded inquiry into how all levels of government handled COVID-19. And I mean, obviously we felt that this had been an extremely significant event and we weren't expecting government to hold an, a fair inquiry into it at all. And, and, you know, other than a very limited inquiry in Alberta, there has been no government inquiry of, of any means. So we basically argued Organized this and we appointed four commissioners, you know, crafted rules where they're completely separate, they are independent of the administration, and we marched them across the land. So, Chris, three days of hearings in Truro, Nova Scotia. So, every city I, I mentioned, three full days of hearings. So, Truro, Toronto, Winnipeg, Saskatoon, Red Deer, Vancouver, Quebec City, and Ottawa. Uh, Over 300 witnesses all under oath, yourself included. And uh, (coughs) it's the largest repertoire of any COVID information anywhere in the world. And and the only one um, where people are under oath for all of the testimonies. And it was just an incredible experience. And (coughs) the purpose of this was then to come up with positive recommendations on how we could do it differently. We weren't trying to grind an ax. We wanted to have people there from every single, you know, angle of the COVID conversation. And something happened that we didn't anticipate. So, and and, and you attended and you already spoke about, you know, the weeping that happened is, is first of all, we didn't, Anticipate how impactful it would be on the nation to have just ordinary Canadians speaking. So yes, we had all the world class experts and, you know, Canadian experts and and just have an amazing repertoire of expert evidence, but it was the average Canadian, whether vaccinated or not, whether speaking about education or social pressure or medical issues that was what was significant and something else happened is is you know first of all i i totally believe that god made the entire thing happen i mean i we could just spend the whole show about how you know we just needs were filled at the last minute but he started to build a community so people began to understand wait a second we're not alone you know we had witnesses back out we had witnesses back out in 2023 I mean, we didn't start hearings until March. In 2023 in Canada, we had witnesses back out at the last minute because they were afraid of of repercussions at work because they were afraid of, you know, social repercussions. And these are witnesses that, you know, had basically won the lottery. We had so many people applying that even to get selected through the first, you know, kind of gate and then to be, you know, interviewed again and then finally to be you know passing by counsel who interviewed you um you were lucky to get there and yet we had a large number of witnesses drop out out of fear
1: so people were scared to speak the truth
2: about their own experiences absolutely absolutely they were and, you know, I have to admit too, I, I wasn't planning on going in front of the camera at all. It just circumstances conspired to make that happen. We just had too many lawyers drop out as the dates approached. I, and, you know, I had a little bit of fear of having to do that because, you know, let me just, you know, give you a, another example. I'm, so I'm at this meeting in Morinville with between four and 500 people. And I asked that crowd, I said, put up your hand if you thought during you know the height of the madness that the army might go door to door and drag unvaccinated people out of their homes and vaccinate them pretty well every hand went up so you know i think we can forgive people because there was talk about stuff like that mm-hmm. and so i think we can forgive people for being afraid but it just it surprised me you know, in 2023 that we're still living this fear and that I was still living this fear. But what happened with the experience is we realized, first of all, well, we're not all alone. And there was something really therapeutic about hearing each other's stories and this whole community formed. Like we all feel like we were part of something bigger and that we are still part of something bigger. And the fear is dispelling and people are starting to understand well, we just have to get involved. We just have to peacefully take our institutions back. I mean, I think you know the model that Take Back Alberta has started on a limited scale, but just the idea of of empowering people to get involved with all political parties and all institutions and every level of government, and <clears throat> getting this ship turned around. I think that's the answer. I think that's how we move forward. So, but you know, back to the National Citizens Inquiry. So we. We have all these hearings Well, the commissioners are charged with coming out, you know, a report, making findings, and most importantly, giving positive recommendations on how things could be done differently. Well, these are just for, you know, people. There's not like we have, um, if, if we were a government inquiry, there would be a team of writers that you know, would write part of the report before the hearings even start, you know, terms of reference, setting up of the commission structure, all of that stuff would be done Mm -hmm. before they'd have an idea before witnesses are called, who they are, what they're doing and all this would be done. On that note, Sean, let
1: let me interrupt you for just a second. So I do want to point out something. Uh, The Alberta government is doing a government inquiry, but basically it's the government looking at what the government did and deciding if the government could have done things better.
2: That's so not I how think... I that's not how I understand it. Um, how I understand it is is that it's an inquiry into it so it's an examination of the laws of Alberta that right. enabled what happened to happen with a view of of determining should changes be made so that you know some things can't happen or to ensure that things are done, you know, better or differently. So my understanding is, is, is it's very narrow in scope being, being that it's just focusing on on the actual text of the laws and the laws itself. And that's interesting um, because
1: depending on your government or how they're how receptive they are to the idea of freedom, that could go one of two ways. They could say, you know, this is where the law allowed the government to interfere with people's rights. And we're going to close this gap so that the government or the people are protected from government or on the contrary, it could go the other way. And they could say, I don't think it would, this will happen, but they could say, we need to strengthen this part of it so that next time we can do it better. So it could go both ways. And that actually, there was a question that came up asking about Preston Manning's involvement in the NCI mm-hmm. because originally that was going to happen. Do you want to just quickly answer that quick? what? Oh yeah, no, no,
2: absolutely. So, um, because I, I have to say, being one of the persons involved on the ground floor, I've always found it somewhat amusing that we were being accused of being a conservative organization. When most people involved, I couldn't even tell you what their political um, orientation is. So um, I had gotten involved with a group of other people to basically do what Senator Johnson had done in the States and Senator Roberts had done in Australia, where they hold, you know, two to three days of hearings on you know the issue of COVID and and call witnesses to basically you know say what they have to say so we were just inspired actually after you know by both of those senators and thought why don't we do that in canada just hold three days of hearings not involve lawyers just like they they didn't involve lawyers and um, and just show that there is a different narrative to the covid experience and that was called the citizens hearings there's a website citizenshearings.ca so i we were starting to organize that and preston manning had written a piece basically you know it was a, a hypothetical you know what if what if there was a citizens inquiry into how government handled covid and they came up with positive recommendations so i can't speak for him but i i can say that he approached our group and said, "Can I partner with you guys, and you know, help you put on the citizens' hearing?" So he he joined our committee, and we actually had him and and two other people be kind of, you know, I'll call them commissioners because now I that language is in my mind because of the National Citizens Inquiry. But you know, they were just there to to moderate and ask questions, and and they did a splendid job, and it was a smashing success. And then after that. We were thinking, well, you know, why don't we do this? Why don't we actually have set up an independent inquiry and, and go bigger? And so, you know, that group, most of that group was continuing with that. At the same time, um, Brian Peckford and Take Back Our Freedom, they had come to the similar idea. And so now we've got two groups kind of approaching the same thing. So some Brian Peckford and some of the some from his group, you know, joined us. Um, you know, some of us left and now we've got this different group and we decide to put this on. So Preston Manning continued on with us from the citizens hearing and Brian Peckford joined and, and others. But Chris, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you, for example, you know, other than, and I haven't asked Brian Peckford his political leanings, but obviously I know, and, and I know Preston's, but for anyone else involved in that group, I couldn't even tell you, you know, where they lean. So, because we've never discussed politics or anything like that so Preston has been one voice um, amongst many now when he was asked by the Alberta government to chair the Alberta inquiry into the um, you know Alberta laws and that structure he chose to resign Um, he had been chair of, of our group and he chose to resign that position and you know, basically stepped back largely from there forward. Um, you know, which is a bit of a shame because he has so much experience that you know his full involvement is just an asset. And there's some other people in that group that just have tremendous experience also. So it's been it's been a real honor to work with him. But that's Preston's involvement. He joined the citizens' hearings, and then that entire group decided, you know, to press on, and then another group joined us. And then God made it happen. I'm still amazed it happened, and just amazed at all the volunteers. So now, do you want me to talk about the interim report and and how it yes. came about?
1: Yes. So now we kind of have an idea of what the NCI is, how how it came to be. Um, you've touched on Preston Manning's involvement, and by the way, Preston Manning, for those of you that don't know, is still involved with the uh, Alberta government's inquiry into as as Sean described, into how the law uh, worked to allow what happened to happen. So he is still involved, just doing different things. And, and it, as far as I know, that interim report is also prepared.
2: And I think it's going to be released fairly quickly. Well, you know, I, I don't know, but I've heard now you're the second person I've heard that from in a week. And, um, and you know, and I look forward to it and. Yeah, it's, it's interesting just, I think he, well, he chairs that and it's a huge commitment and I'm, I'm excited to see what the report is and then like you, what's done with it because, right. you know, different things can happen. But I think step one is, you know, we can't change things unless we learn how things are. And And so I'm like, I'm chomping at the bit to tell you about <laughs> this, you know, part of the commissioner's report. But it's kind of funny because the commissioners are, you know, busily writing their report. And as, as I've already indicated, it's just the four of them. They don't, they don't have a writing team or anything to help them. And, you know, the admin, we're kind of getting a little antsy, like, well, when are you guys going to get this to us? And one of the persons on our, you know, our admin group uh, thought, you know, why don't we ask if they would agree to release that part of their report that deals with the drug approval test for the COVID-19 vaccines and why don't we try to time that before parliament resumes on September 18th and Mm -hmm. so we asked the commissioners and they said oh yeah no we'd be happy to do this now Chris this was before this was before we started hearing in the media you know oh about this scary variant that's in Canada and how it might break out and how we're all gonna need another vaccine and masking and maybe, you know, God forbid mandates type thing, right? So so before that we made this decision, but it's so timely because everything that happened, you know, the, the mandates, the passports, all the restrictions we lost in connection to the vaccine was all supported by the belief that they were proven to be safe and effective. Like Chris, would would you think Canada or any province, let alone Alberta, would have tolerated requiring passports, would have tolerated us being divided into separate groups, would have tolerated all of us being locked in our homes while we're waiting for this to happen? if the government had said, well, we're doing this, waiting for a vaccine or, you know, the vaccine's here, but you're gonna lose privileges unless you take it. But you know, we can't tell you whether it's safe and we can't tell you whether it's effective. No one would have put up with it. So this whole edifice is supported by this constant messaging that it's been proven to be safe and effective. And that's what the commissioner's report eviscerates.
1: Our premier even said at one point, what do you mean, vaccine passport? We would never do that. As a matter of fact, that sounds illegal. And then he did it.
2: Yes. And, you know, prior to our court decisions, we would have all thought that it, it was illegal. Now, and so you're you're on the NCI site and anyone can go to that site and and find this interim report. This interim report, it's only 15 pages long but it's absolutely shocking what happened. So again, we've all had this messaging that the vaccines were proven to be safe and effective. And in fact, um, Health Canada for every vaccine that's been approved has a separate web page. And so let's say you went to the Pfizer vaccine webpage. <clears throat> At the top of the page, it'll have a, a sentence that reads something like, all COVID-19 vaccines approved of by Health Canada have been proven to be safe, effective and of the highest quality. And Chris, that's political messaging. I think Canadians would be shocked to learn that they were approved under a test where you didn't have to prove safety and efficacy. Well, and they admitted that in the European Parliament, I believe. Well, I think what Pfizer admitted was, is they never tested the, um, the vaccine for transmission which, you know, was one of the planks. But, you know, in our ordinary drug approval world and these COVID-19 vaccines, they're what we call new drugs in the Canadian drug approval world. And so if you went to our food and drug regulations to C.08.001, that's where the drug approval process begins for this type of drugs. <clears throat> and in the normal course of event, the focus is on demonstrating basically proving to the minister and the Minister Health Canada. So proving to the minister that the drug is safe, and then proving to the minister that the drug is effective. And then and only then, so once you understand the safety profile of a drug, and once you understand the efficacy profile of a drug, then and only then can you actually do a cost-benefit analysis. Is this a good idea? Do the benefits of the drug outweigh the risk should we allow this onto the market now that risk benefit analysis actually isn't written into our regulations but it's done in any event because it's common sense and it's done because some criminal law and international law obligations put that as a minimum standard before you could allow a novel chemical or a novel treatment into the human population so normally the whole focus is about safety and efficacy. But for the COVID-19 vaccines, the Minister of Health exempted them from the normal drug approval process. So what happened was, is about a month between, before the first two filers, the Minister of Health issued an interim order exempting all COVID-19 drugs and the vaccines are COVID-19 drugs as that interim order defines them. So it exempted the vaccines from having to go through the normal drug approval process. It exempted the vaccine manufacturers from having to show, you know, basically provide robust evidence of safety and efficacy. In fact, the words are they only have to provide the known evidence. And even then they don't have to provide it right away. And this test is imposed. and, And Chris, I'll, I'll just recite the test from memory and I, and likely I'll get it right. But if I get a word wrong, it's it's not going to affect the meaning. <clears throat> but the COVID-19 vaccines were approved under this, this following test. And it's important to understand that if this test is met, there's no discretion. Health Canada has to approve. Like the word is shall. <clears throat> and the test starts... The minister has sufficient evidence to support the conclusion. And I'll just stop there. Do you do you want to stop scrolling for a sec? I'm getting distracted actually. Oh, <laughs> or I Are you, you at test? Yeah, so go ahead. yeah, so the so the minister it it starts the minister has sufficient evidence to support the conclusion. And I, I stop there because we actually have to examine that language. You see, if you because what follows is, is what, you know, this conclusion, which has to be supported. But if you had to prove, you know, what follows, it should read the minister as sufficient evidence to conclude. So if we understand the minister's Health Canada, if like, so let's say Pfizer is applying, if Pfizer had to prove anything to get this drug approval, it should read the minister as sufficient evidence to conclude. But it doesn't say that. It says the minister has sufficient evidence to support the conclusion. Whose conclusion? Well, it's not the minister's conclusion. So, you know, it's funny when I was first looking at this, I was, you know, pulling up thesauruses and, you know, what's synonymous with conclusion in that. And really what we're talking about is being able to support an argument. So let's say Pfizer's making an application and the test is the minister has to have sufficient evidence to support the conclusion not the minister's conclusion then pfizer just has to be able to make an argument on the evidence it presents for what follows so we're not actually talking about concretely proving what follows but i'm going to say the whole test and you listen to see if the word safety is in the test and you listen to see if the word efficacy is in the test because neither safety nor efficacy are even mentioned, let alone have to be proven. So the test is the minister has sufficient evidence to support the conclusion that the benefits of the drug outweigh the risks, having regard to the uncertainties concerning the benefits and risks, and the urgent public health emergency presented by COVID-19. Now, break that down a little bit, but safety isn't even mentioned, let alone need to be proved. And efficacy isn't even mentioned, let alone need to be proved. And when you look at the rest of the interim order, they don't even have to provide robust data on safety or efficacy. They're only required to provide the known data. So there's, <clears throat> the minister doesn't even have to be given robust evidence on safety and efficacy. And, and why would the minister need that? because it's not relevant for the test. Pfizer, just using Pfizer as the example, they don't have to prove it's safe to get get approved. And they don't have to to prove that it works to get it approved. And even though there's cost benefit language there, they don't even have to prove the, the, the benefits outweigh the risks, they just have to be able to support the conclusion. So again, the test the minister has, sufficient evidence to support the conclusion that the benefits of the drug outweigh the risk. Now that's a fallacious test because if you don't understand, if safety isn't proven, if you don't understand the safety profile and if efficacy isn't proven, if you don't understand the efficacy profile, you can't do a cost benefit analysis. You you just simply can't. You can't do a cost benefit analysis if you don't know the costs and you don't know the benefits. Now, in, in the regular drug approval world, if there's any doubt about safety or any doubt about efficacy, it ends there, you're still an experimental drug. That this is why we hold experiments is to figure out, are they safe or are they effective? Sometimes we find out, no, they're not safe or, and, you know, and, or they're not effective, but, the, but then we know when we're still trying to figure that out, it's experimental. So in this case, they experimented on 40 million Canadians. Well, listen Listen to the, how the test continues. So the minister has sufficient evidence to support the conclusion that benefits outweigh the risks, having regard to the uncertainties concerning the benefits and risks. So built into the test. And, and the ironic thing is the minister of health is issuing this test for the minister of health, like no conflict of interest there. But. <clears throat> under this test, basically Health Canada is being directed, don't worry that you don't know. Like, don't worry that you don't know. Well, <clears throat> we're, we're in pure experiment zone still. And then the test basically compels Health Canada to consider this a public health emergency, which is a push to approve because it ends and the urgent public health emergency presented by COVID-19. Now, Under international law, Canada is strictly prohibited by carrying on any experiment on a human being without full and informed consent that the person is involved in an experiment. And we were fully in an experimental zone. like People believed, because of the public messaging, that these vaccines had to be proven to be safe and they had to be proven to be effective. Now, we know as a fact that these vaccines weren't. So for example, in in Brian Peckford's lawsuit in federal court where he and others are fighting this travel you know, restriction, unless you have a, a passport, the Health Canada employee who had approved all the COVID-19 vaccines up to the date of that affidavit, Celia Lorenko, she basically, in her affidavit, set out for both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. Here's what I, I based my approval on. And she mirrors this test. And it's frightening. Like anyone reading that will go, Oh my gosh. They didn't prove it was safe. They didn't prove the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines were safe to the person who approved them. And they didn't prove to her that they worked. She's telling us in an affidavit, basically, the uncertainties, which were there was only a mean of two months of data on safety and efficacy. Like that's nothing, Chris, especially when we acknowledge that it, it truly is an experimental treatment. Like for these um, mRNA vaccines, like I don't care that we might have used them in small amounts for like terminally ill cancer patients, we can't extrapolate any meaningful safety or or efficacy data from that. Like, I mean, we're in a full on experiment here with a novel technology and to, to approve it, you know, for general use in the entire adult population based on a mean of two months of safety and efficacy data, just, I mean, ignoring what a mess that data was, And all the red flags in that data that we understand have been coming out of the Pfizer dump, for example. But, I mean, even let's say the data, you know, looked favorable. It's still just not enough time to, you know, make any meaningful decisions. So they didn't Sean,
1: if we didn't, everybody would have died of COVID.
2: I, I keep forgetting that, Chris. I keep forgetting to be grateful that basically they threw all caution to the wind. Um, and, and you know, impose this on us. And, and you know, now we're starting to experience the consequences of this. And we don't know how many years we're gonna be facing these consequences caused by the vaccines, let alone, you know, the lockdowns and school closures and all these other things. I mean, the the generation of young kids that were learning language, the young ones that have to see facial expressions they have to see facial expressions. Their brains are wired to watch your face as they learn language and learn social discourse. And we've stunted their IQ in a significant way and that generation will never recover. And we can, we probably can never even measure those costs, let alone all the other social costs just with the school closure. Like it's absolutely insane and in that we would do this waiting for a vaccine that we, we can't even know if it's safe or effective, let alone whether or not the benefits outweigh the risk. <clears throat> and while we're at it, and we're all in this mass psychosis of, you know, fear and hysteria, let's do everything we can to ignore safety signals. And that came out writ large at the National Citizens Inquiry. I mean, it, it seems that, you know, two of the most impossible things um, that could happen is, is for a human being to just in one leap jump over the moon um, but even more difficult is to actually get an adverse reaction report from a vaccine injury in canada actually in health canada's hands like uh, the jumping over the moon i think is an easier proposition yeah it was no
1: testimony from physicians who were trying to report and
2: couldn't it, it it was absolutely astounding i mean was it um dr milburn who testified in truro He was the doctor that, you know, submitted 10 adverse reaction reports. And, you know, we have to understand that if certain criteria are met, actually by law, the doctors have to submit these. And pre-COVID, and I don't know when this changed, but doctors could just submit them directly to Health Canada. And yet it seems by the time COVID rolls around, Doctors could no longer submit them directly to Health Canada, they all went through a provincial board. Now that in itself is mind boggling because an adverse reaction reporting system, should it should be as easy as possible to file a report because the whole idea is for it to be an early warning system. You don't care if there's false reports there, you're looking for patterns and overall numbers and trying to decide whether you need to get more robust evidence if you're not satisfied with it. It's an early warning system. And yet we put up a roadblock and Chris prior to COVID. And again, I don't know how long it was before COVID citizens could file adverse reaction reports. You didn't have to be a doctor, but that was taken down. But, but Dr. Milburn, he submits 10 of these. And instead of them being submitted to health Canada, he's subject to, you know, professional misconduct investigation by his college. And all the doctors in this province knew what was happening. And, how many of those do you think then were eager to follow the law and file adverse reaction reports?
1: Unreal. So yeah. let me let me just recap. Let me see if I if I got this right. So the minister uh, on a federal level um, approved the vaccines, the COVID nineteen vaccines, without having data to prove or at least reasonably assume that they were either safe or effective. And instead of having enough evidence to conclude, they had enough evidence to support somebody else's conclusion. So the minister basically said, oh, okay, well, I'll just go with what they said, and we're going to give this Largely untested, not unproven, or unproven medical intervention to 40 million Canadians. And actually, no, we're not gonna just give it to them. We're going to pressure them. We're going to task the Canadian Behavioral Sciences Department to nudge
2: Canadians to take this. Oh, and and you know, pay mainstream media, but but let's backtrack on nudge
1: and universities and schools.
2: Oh, I'd love to know, like, you know, and, and remember, we have to backtrack on one thing, because you said something that I, it's a logical leap we can't take. But, you know, I'd love to know, like, we're colleges of physicians and surgeons and colleges of pharmacists and, and things like that, where they all fell into line, and they all basically threw away legal consent, and requiring their members, like in, in normal times, their members would be severely disciplined for what just happened, where people are basically taking a treatment where they can't get informed consent, where we're totally violating Canadian and international law. <clears throat> so how did all these colleges fall into place? Like, I'd love to know, you know, were there contracts with Pfizer, was there grant funding or something? Were, were there some legal obligations on them to fall in line in exchange for receipt of money. I have no idea. We've heard of that type of thing happening in the United States. But what we have to backtrack on is you said, you know, <clears throat> you know. Let's use Pfizer as an example. That you know they didn't they didn't provide evidence of safety. Well, we actually don't know that because we don't have, we don't have, you know, Pfizer's drug submission. It's not like the Pfizer dump in the United States where people are confident that they have everything that was submitted. Now let's assume, let's assume that Pfizer submitted to Health Canada, the same application, you know, by and large that they did in the United States, which would seem reasonable. Um, Then likely based on what we're learning, but this is just what I hear, not what I have personal experience in, likely they couldn't prove safety. But the point I'm trying to make is they didn't have to prove safety. And they didn't have to provide this detailed evidence of safety that you normally have to. They only were obligated to provide the known evidence under this interim order concerning safety and efficacy, you know, and what does that mean? And even then there was a provision saying, well, if you can't even provide the known evidence, just let us know how you're going to get it to us later. Well, of course they didn't have to have it with their submission because they didn't have to prove it. Now, I'm suspicious that the pharmaceutical companies were told what the new test was going to be well before the interim order came out, because we basically had a filing within a month by two different pharmaceutical companies within a month of the test coming out. Now, it's a lot of work to get a new drug submission together and gear it to meet a specific test. And so if they were working to meet the tests of safety and efficacy, which are in the, the normal drug approval process, um, <clears throat> that's one thing. But I, I don't think they were. I think that they knew what was going on and know that they wouldn't have to do this. And I mean, the whole thing is just a huge conflict of interest. Because another thing that, that this interim order did is our law is you can't import a drug that, that isn't approved. So you know, Scott, you or I, we can't order into Canada, you know, a new drug like a chemical pharmaceutical that's never been used before. We can't even import it unless it it gets approved by Health Canada. It's illegal to import it, and yet the interim order allowed the minister to purchase large amounts of these vaccines pre-approval to distribute it to the provinces pre-approval which is also illegal normally, but they were exempted, <clears throat> and then sit there. So think of the conflict of interest. The Minister of Health purchases all these vaccines. The Minister of Health distributes all these vaccines, and then the Minister of Health is waiting for the Minister of Health to approve the vaccines and issues the Minister of Health a brand-new test for which to prove it, um, where you don't have to prove safety and efficacy. But we have a huge conflict of interest here. I mean, once the minister was in a position um, that we were in a conflict of interest, um, power should have been delegated to some other party to manage this process, not the minister of health. Like the whole thing is just absolutely fantastic. And do you wanna hear the most crazy part? And your listeners or your viewers will go, I don't believe this. But you know, when you go and read the interim order and then you know actually look at the law, you go, Oh, okay. But still, I don't believe it. So, <clears throat> Chris, in the normal course of events, if the minister approves a new drug, so you know, at the time of the approval, safety's proven, efficacy's proven, the minister grants the approval. But in the normal course of events if after approvals granted new evidence comes forward to suggest to the minister hey wait a second this isn't safe or hey wait a second this doesn't work like we thought then the minister has the power to withdraw the application and take the drug off the market now listen to this so in the interim order so the minister of health in the interim order for a full year takes away the minister's own power to withdraw COVID-19 vaccines that are approved from the market if subsequent evidence show they are unsafe or if subsequent evidence shows they don't work. Isn't that? On a, uh,
1: my internet was
2: garbled right as you said that. So, well, it, and it's worth repeating, I hope it wasn't garbled for everyone. So normally the Minister of Health has the power to take a drug off the market that's already approved. if subsequent evidence shows it's not safe or it's not effective but in the interim order which lasted for almost a year so it it was in force for almost a year so the interim order took away the minister took away the minister's own power for covid 19 vaccines so the minister took away the minister's power to withdraw them from the market after they're approved if it turns out they're unsafe or they don't work and on what planet does the minister of health take away the Minister's of Health's power to remove a, an unsafe or ineffective drug off, drug off the market. And and why? Well, I, I don't know. Like, I mean, I, I've worked in, in a lot of government policy departments and, um, you know, including working in a Premier's office long ago. And I'm not sure I could figure out any way to spin that in the public interest. Because how could it be in the public interest in any way to basically take away your own, the mini, you know, the minister's taking away the minister's own power to withdraw COVID-19 vaccines that are approved off the market if, you know, we later learn they're not safe or effective. Like, that is not in the public interest. And I think that's telling about intention. And, you know, the irony is, you know, especially remember the phrase, follow the science, follow the science. I mean, thank I goodness. That, thank, thank goodness we don't hear that one anymore. Mm-hmm. But we couldn't have a less scientific drug approval test. It, it, you could have Windex approved under there because, you, again, you don't have to prove anything. You just have to be able to make the argument, the benefits outweigh the risks. But, oh, you have to have regard to the uncertainties concerning benefits and risks and the urgent public health emergency presented by COVID-19, which is saying you have to approve this, right? So the whole thing was a, a sham because we weren't told the truth. The constant public messaging was safe and effective, safe and effective, safe and effective. I mean, we probably all say that in our sleep, we've heard it so much, but that was politically political messaging because the governments, both federal and provincial, because provincial governments kept reciting that Every organization recited it. The media did, the colleges did, you know, physicians and surgeons and and pharmacists. Everyone said and repeated the mantra, it's safe and effective, safe and effective. My favorite is the Ontario Court of Appeal in uh, CG versus JH. Are you familiar with that case? No. So... That was a case you probably were familiar with the lower level. So, you know, a father and mother that are, you know, they don't live together and they're fighting it out whether the kids should be oh, vaccinated. Yes. And at the lower level that the trial court says, you know. I, I'm not going to side with the father who wants vaccination. And, you know, I I get that because the father submitted Affidavit materials where he just, you know, had printouts from Health Canada and, and groups like that. And he said, but you know, they've gotten it wrong before. Like think of thalidomide and this and this and this. And it was just this really encouraging decision for people that were concerned that the courts were just going one direction. But at the Interior Court of Appeal decision, the Interior Court of Appeal just went completely the other direction and went so far as to say that if a drug is approved by Health Canada, and they're specifically referencing the COVID-19 vaccines, that that is prima facie evidence that they have been proven to be safe and they've proven to be infective, and they literally went so far as to direct, because this is Ontario Court of Appeals, so now all the family courts below, there is a legal presumption because of that case that the parent that you know wants vaccination because the vaccine, regardless of which one it is, has been approved by Health Canada, that there's prima facie evidence it's safe, been proven to be safe and effective. <clears throat> and the burden is on the party that doesn't want the child to be vaccinated to rebut this legal presumption. And I think, well, isn't that funny? You know, ignorance of the law is no excuse um, for anyone, except I guess the Ontario Court of Appeal who seemed to be completely unaware that for the COVID-19 vaccines, they, they, weren't, they didn't need to be proven safe nor effective and Chris, every COVID-19 vaccine maker had the option of applying under the regular drug approval process. They could have said, yeah, you're exempting us. We don't, we don't have to go through the regular test, but we're going to anyway. We're going to prove to you it's safe and we're going to prove it's effective, but none of them did that. So, and they didn't do it because it was much easier to go the other route. And the the whole public messaging has been a fraud. Well, that highlights one of the
1: major problems with our courts, and I can't remember if it was on uh, Manitoba or Saskatchewan, but there was a there was a trial, and it was over COVID mandates or restrictions, maybe a business closure closure, or maybe it was a church. I can't remember. Anyway, the 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 party that was defending these COVID charges had a panel of expert witnesses that was extremely impressive. But I mean, their credentials were a mile long. They were easily world renowned uh, uh, experts on these issues. And the court said, we're not scientists. We're not going to listen to your experts because we're not just we're not going to go through the science. We're going to take judicial notice that there's a pandemic because the people that uh, they were defending against the government the cmoh says there is and the same thing happened here in alberta they say well we don't need to see the evidence because we're just going to take judicial notice of this pandemic because in in my case dina hinshaw mm-hmm. says there's there's a pandemic and i said well where's dina hinshaw's evidence to support her claims where's the government's evidence to support their claims that we uh, for these vax passes because they're infringing on our rights and according to the constitution, as you know, Sean, the, the government is supposed to be able to prove or justify before they do that. And they didn't do it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, we'll get to section one in a second. I mean, Chris, this was one of the biggest surprises for me in in this pandemic, because and, I, and I'm a practicing lawyer. I mean, I literally when I say I've easily run a thousand trials and we're talking many of them months long like I'm not kidding, I, I was a high volume trial lawyer. I mean, I, I know the courts. And <clears throat> pre-COVID, I'm expecting when COVID's hitting, no, the, the court's gonna step in between the state and the citizen because that's what rule of law is, is that everyone, including our rulers, are subject to the exact same law. Could you imagine going into civil proceedings and the other side has a legal presumption that they're right and you have to overcome this? What? What are you talking yep. about? Like, yep. and yet everyone found in COVID, legisl- you know, litigation that there's this, the courts decided with the government without the government having to provide evidence, like, and then not looking at the evidence of the other side or this, you know, this trick of, of mootness. That I mean, that just drove me crazy. But I I couldn't believe that the government was not privileging, like basically requiring the government to prove itself. And and you know you made a reference to, I mean, section one of our our charter basically begins by saying the charter of right, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms guarantees the rights and freedoms set out in it. Which I mean, if it ended there, great. But now the mischief starts subject only to such reasonable limits prescribed by law as can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society now the courts you know beginning with you know regina versus oaks said hey okay so here's how it's going to work if you're taking the the government to court saying they violated you know one of my rights constitutional rights well you've got to show the government violated your rights okay so they put the onus on the party saying hey my rights are violated But once you've done that, the onus switched to the government to have to justify why the right right was violated. And I mean, the intention was, and we all thought it would be, you know, really hard for the government to do that, that it would be a rare day. But in COVID, for those few cases where, you know, there was actually a hearing where somebody could argue the rights were violated. And I say few because so many cases were, you know, thrown out for, you know, under this doctrine of mootness, which, you know, is a, a tragedy that, that happened to us also. But, I mean, basically every case that got to the point where the court would accept a right was violated, every single one, the court said, oh, yeah, but the government was justified. Because so just they said so. the government
1: was justified because the government says they were justified. That mm-hmm. that was a big problem for me, a huge problem. Yeah. And actually, you mentioned, uh, I think you kind of alluded to the separation of government to protect the citizens, right? And I was taught that in elementary school. We have the judiciary, the legislative branch, and the executive branch. And there's us in the middle. And they're supposed to be independent of each other and work Mm -hmm. uh, apart from each other so that we're protected. So if there's legislation that's passed that is not in our best interest, it violates our rights, then we go to the judiciary and then they say, hey, no, government, you can't do this. The executive branch makes sure it happens and we're protected. But it's not happening like that. What's happening, what happened in my case, and you know this, Sean, but just for those of you watching who were living in Iraq, the legislative branch of government did something that violated my rights. They closed my business, said I couldn't operate my business. I said, like hell, you're not, you're not interfering on my rights unless you can prove it. So I ended up before the judiciary, before the courts. And I said to the courts, The government is violating my rights and they haven't demonstrably justified that it needs to happen. Well, this all takes a long time. In the meantime, the executive branch of government, the RCMP, shows up at my business with a representative of the legislative branch, Alberta Health Services, that's a pseudo government organization, shows up with the executive branch and takes my property from me. There was no separation of powers of government. There was no protection for me or any of the other people that were um, put in those positions. Those three, can I say colluded? Those three worked in partnership to try and pummel me into oblivion. And, you know, we, we started to uncover some of this in my, uh, in my trial, which was blown out of the water by the Ingram decision. But that's, you know, if, if anybody wants to just say, oh yeah, we live in a free country, don't worry about it. I, I want to remind you that when those three branches of government are no longer separate and are no longer protecting the citizens and have their best interests, we do not live in a free country. And, and you know, some of the things that Sean has heard and I've heard as well um, in the NCI testimony and even just people sharing their stories at the cafe they are, you know, it demonstrates so clearly that we have a huge problem there. So, Sean, we know we have a problem, and it's a big one. I mean, I, I didn't realize that that interim order was as shady as it is. And it's shocking. I, I want to get, um, I'm maybe we should get something that I can post on my page that's a, a write-up of that that explains well, it. Well, actually, that
2: when you get it from the NCI site it's only 15 pages long. Oh it's so in, the, it, it's in it, there it's it it's there yeah I think I okay. think when we were up here Teresa had posted the the link so and I'm sure I'm sure she's okay, happy yeah okay again. so I'll I'll get it I'll
1: get it up there again and then maybe if Teresa can do it one more time I'll just put it on the screen but uh
2: what what do we do? Where's well, the I, solution line so first of all I mean, I I think the solution's already happening, but the solution is is for every single one of us to start taking responsibility back again. You know, I I've mentioned Take Back Alberta, and I just think they've stumbled across the answer. It's just that application needs to be broadened. So, for those of you not familiar with Take Back Alberta, <clears throat> I mean, it's it's a group of people that you know lean you know UCP the Conservative Party. And so they've joined, you know, they were either members or got people to join as members. Um, and so they were instrumental in getting the leadership review that got Premier Daniel Smith in, and also then got like-minded people that are actually concerned about rights and freedoms um, elected to the policy board. And so step by step, they're trying to get that party acting um, according to, you know, people that love rights by getting people who love rights involved. Now, What if we expanded that to to all three parties, to every party in existence, and at every level of government, and you know, school boards, and if you know you're part of a professional organization, you know, getting involved, all we have to do, the third of us that understand that the country's off the rails, and that basically our institutions have been hijacked by, you know, by an agenda of some description, and we don't like where things are going, we, we just have to take our, our institutions back by working for them. Like it, it truly is that simple. I mean, what I'm working on um, with the NHPPA and other freedom groups is seeing if we can basically set up a national structure um, broader than Take Back Alberta to basically be equipping and empowering people to do just this. I mean, <clears throat> Chris, you have set an example By saying no, you were the, am I right? You were the only restaurant open in the province of Alberta?
1: For a a period of time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there were some that uh, followed suit and actually there was a lot the second time, but they, they backed down quickly because I think a lot of them had more to lose than I did. But yeah, there was a time when I was the only restaurant in Alberta open. Yeah. So In, so in public. I've found out since then, as I travel across the province, I've spoken at likely hundreds of events by now. And, and every time I go to, almost every time I go to a restaurant, somebody's like, Oh yeah, good for you. What you did, you know, well, we were letting people in the back. We just weren't public about it. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Everybody was doing the same thing to survive. And there was only a handful of people that were wanted to be public and, and try and try and change it.
2: and, I don't know. But you see, if you weren't public, we wouldn't be having this podcast. You wouldn't have set an example for a whole bunch of people. And, I mean, it cost you dearly, but it's made a difference. And so the point is, is that's an example of somebody standing up. And, I mean, I, I don't think, like, your audience has to understand just how crazy powerful they are. I mean, if every single person watching this just made a decision, you know what, I'm in an information war. Things are off the rails and I need to be involved with 100 percent of my effort. So, you know, if you have a job, great, but you're a soldier in an information war and that is now your calling and you just decide, well, how am I going to make a difference being that I'm doing this with all that I am? you they, everyone would be shocked they would be shocked and chris i can tell you as a fact that we're in a spiritual war there's just there's no question about it i mean i i call it an information war because it's also that And in information wars we're learning are much more dangerous than the bullets and bombs war but we're in a spiritual war and god is calling every single person to step up and become accountable for fighting this war, and it is just incredible how people are getting involved. And we're in a world of hurt, and I think we're in the you know the eye of the hurricane. I think that um, there has to be plans in place to distract us, whether it's with war or economic collapse or both, and something else so that we are not focused on this unfolding catastrophe with health consequences. But despite the fact that, you know, we're gonna have some tough times, these are also the best of times because we all get to decide who we are and we actually can make a difference. And, you know, one thing, and I, I, I think I said it at one of the NCI openings, but it's, it's worth saying to people. So those of you watching this, you tell me if i'm wrong here but when you were younger you understood that you were here for something important when you were a little kid you knew it you knew you were here for something really important and then you know you went to school and we started to socialize you and you some of you went to university or you went in the workforce and you got married and you had kids and soccer practice and this and that And before you know it, you're so busy, you don't know what's happening and your life's passing your by. And you would have been thinking, you know, I used to think I was here for something important, but I guess not. Well, that part was incorrect. The part when you were younger and you understood you were here for something important was absolutely true and is absolutely true. All of us, all of us are here for right now. And this is this is a turning point in history, and we have the privilege of being involved.
1: Well, I agree that, you know, this is a, it is a spiritual war. And one of the things that gives me comfort and why I look at it as more of a a roller coaster ride that I have the privilege of being on is that I know how it's, I know how it turns out. It's written, it's been written for thousands of years. I know I know what the end looks like and I'm not saying that it's going to be particularly pleasant for me or anyone else but I know that at the end of the day when the dust settles good wins and there's nothing that bad or evil can do about it so uh, yeah my my outlook on it is is kind of do everything you can to do the right mm-hmm. thing as best you can because I'm I'm oftentimes I don't do the right thing I'm I'm certainly perfectly imperfect but uh, you know just take comfort in knowing that we we already did win and i said this before i'll say it again and i'll probably take heat because people will say oh chris why you got to talk about religion well because there's two things in this in this world that are really important religion and politics politics affects everything in the life we have right now religion affects everything we have once we're done with this life so i will talk about it but uh, you know this this battle was won and it was won like a couple thousand years ago on a cross, and so that's. I'm not a Bible thumper or a preacher, but I I'm confident and I have faith that this battle was won. So, my part in it, my part in the story, is just to to do what uh, what we're commanded to do, which is love your neighbor, and part of loving your neighbor. Mm-hmm is sticking up for them when the government sticks their dirty little fingers in their lives and chains their businesses shut. So that's what we do. We stand up for each other. Now, did we actually talk about what the interim report from the NCI is recommending governments do? Because I think that's a big part of we, it.
2: We did not. And this, this is important. And I'm just going to have to come back on another show on the NHP stuff. <laughs> so because we've just got too much nci stuff so let me just read to you some of the recommendations so one of the first recommendations concerning you know this part of the report that deals with the drug approval process is that um, and and i'll just give a little bit of context so this interim order came out and an interim order lasts for a year but the government basically took this interim test and put it permanently into our drug regulations. So now it's not in the interim order. Basically, the government took what was in the interim order and put it into our regulations. So the commissioners, as one of the recommendations, are saying, you have to undo these changes. You can't have a drug approval test for COVID-19 drugs where there isn't a requirement on the drug company to actually prove that they're safe and to actually prove that they're effective. So so we basically have to undo this fraud on the Canadian public where this, you know, purely subjective political test has been permanently put into our drug regulations. Now, more importantly, Chris, the commissioners, and and I'll read this one, The current use of COVID-19 vaccines in Canada that were approved under the revised provisions of the interim order and the newly revised food and drug regulations should be stopped immediately. So the commissioners are calling for a full stop of the use of the COVID-19 vaccines because they have not been proven to be safe and because they have not been proven to be effective. They're calling for- Before you go on,
1: Sean. I just want to, I have an ask of the people that are watching. Um, I'm going to ask Sean to read that again. And for those of you that are into this kind of stuff, I want you to clip this part out and I want you to put this up on TikTok, share it on Twitter, put it on your pages, do everywhere you can. Take this little clip of Sean's recommendations that the commissioners are making uh, from the findings of the NCI and, and clip it into like a 30 second blurb. And let's
2: get it everywhere. So, Sean, can you just read that one more time, please? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a recommendation from the commissioners of the National Citizens Inquiry, where they say the current use of COVID-19 vaccines in Canada that were approved under the revised provisions of the interim order and the newly revised food and drug regulations should be stopped immediately. So the commissioners are calling for a full stop of these COVID-19 vaccines, which were not required to be proven safe and were not required to be proven as effective, which is pretty significant.
1: It is. And if you are uh, a politician or an an administrator or someone in a position of authority, you now know that the commissioners of this uh, uh, um, inquiry, based on the testimony of hundreds of people across this country, are recommending a full stop on the COVID-19 vaccines.
2: Oh, yeah. No, they, they absolutely are. And actually, I mean, this part of the recommendation is, is based on, you know, the drug approval experts that testified. It's, it's not even getting into all of the other problems. Um, They're also calling for a full judicial investigation under the process for which these COVID-19 vaccines were approved, um, including and saying that if criminal liability, if discovered, may be dealt with under existing criminal law. They're they're viewing the existing criminal law as sufficient. But isn't that interesting, Chris? So the, the commissioners of the National Citizens' Inquiry are saying there needs to be a judicial inquiry into how this entire drug approval process was handled. And that if criminal liability is discovered that it be dealt with under Canadian law. I, you know, I can tell you as a lawyer that there would also be international law provisions that would apply. I'm <clears throat> I'm, I'm, quite shocked and I still cannot get my head around um, the fact that we've approved them for use in, in children. I mean, if you, you're in your mid forties and have you, you know, prior to to the vaccines, ever heard of like teenagers dying in their sleep or dying on the soccer field or having, no, you know, but, mild uh, I've, heard,
1: I've heard more of that in the last
2: couple of years than I, I care I I care to. Well, prior to COVID, and you know, <clears throat> I'm closer to sixty than fifty. Prior to COVID. I'm not, I don't recall a teenager ever dying in their sleep, you know, except for a drug overdose. Like not, not some healthy, you know, the kid that used to mow my lawn can't because of pericarditis. Like I'd never even heard myocarditis or I'm sorry, it was myocarditis. I've never even heard myocarditis or pericarditis before COVID. Neither had I. And, and the term, you know, turbo cancer, like we had at the National Citizens Inquiry a couple of weeks ago, Dr. Mackey, who is, you know, <clears throat> he's a cancer doctor. He's an ecologist. And I mean, the number of, you know, tissue samples he has examined to, you know, make diagnoses in that it it's just crazy the experience he has. And I asked him during his testimony, um, Dr. Mackey, so we locked, you know, we locked down, we stopped cancer treatment we stopped screening, uh, what would we expect to flow from that, you know, considering the amount of time that we did that for, <clears throat> because the mainstream media had, has been putting out now the, the theme now and again that, you know, the reason why we're having all these cancers is, is we stopped treating and we stopped testing. And I wasn't expecting his answer, Chris, because he explained actually most cancers progress quite slowly. And, you know, overall, that that really wasn't a red alert emergency where you would really expect, you know, outrageously more difficult health outcomes. So I, I was surprised by that. And he said, yeah, we're not diagnosing cancers that are occurring for a while. But then once we start diagnosing them again, we'll catch those. And overall, our numbers shouldn't have increased. Because we weren't testing for a while, which actually, you know, now that I've heard him say that, that kind of makes common sense. You're going to have a certain number of cancers. We have a, you know, a kind of a, a trend going on. <clears throat> and if we just stop testing for a while and then, then pick that up again, well, our overall numbers year on year or two year period, they're not going to change. It's right. just when we discover them to But But what he did talk about was how there are cancers now, especially with young people that he's never seen before so you'll have young people getting cancers young people don't get and like people just getting cancers like in patterns that an experienced cancer doctor has never seen before and the only thing that's changed is the covid pandemic and the vaccines and and nobody's pretending that covid's causing this
0: la, but la, there la, seems la, to be a, la, la, la.
2: yeah yeah, like even the term COVID or turbo cancer, like that's a new term. Well, and the heart
1: and and the heart attacks, the heart issues. I remember reading something, uh so, some government or maybe it was a media company, they were they they posted an article blaming the increased heart attacks on people stressed out that they were unvaccinated
2: people around them. can you believe my favorite my favorite was um and i live in the edmonton area um and this wasn't well obviously it wasn't this year um it may have been last year or the year before but it was gardening season and the messaging was on how you know gardening can cause heart attacks oh yeah Mm -hmm. you remember that one too and like to me i'm sorry if there's any hobby that is likely to be calming for you and not cause a heart attack. Surely it's gardening. Well, right. you could be worried about
1: an uh, uh, unvaccinated person and then you're walking through your garden too. So maybe you're super stressed. No, it's all, it's all ridiculous. And I'm, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around the fact that more people aren't, aren't catching these things and, and, uh make, deciding that they want to find out more about why things look crazy. Anyhow, um, so the first recommendation from the commissioners
2: full stop on the vaccines. Well, that's do, the do second. The first, process. the first is let's undo these silly legal changes. Uh the first yeah, okay. So the second. It. Yeah. What was the next the, one? The second one is let's stop this vaccination. Like mm-hmm. we're we're vaccinating people that you know, with a vaccine that hasn't been proven to be safe or effective. <clears throat> then they're calling for a full investigation. Into the the, proce- the drug approval process for the vaccines, you know, and saying you know if this reveals criminal liability, that that it be dealt with. Um, they're asking the the next one, and you know why does anyone have to be asking for this? We're we're we we're in theory in a global pandemic. They're offering a vaccine is really our only way out of this. Nobody's pretending it's not rushed. It is new technology. We're all being told this. Surely you would want everyone going over, let's use Pfizer as an example, the Pfizer documents to, you know, how about was this a good idea? Was this not a good idea? What should we be paying attention to? Maybe even discovering, you know, how to tweak the protocols or, or dosages or whatever. But when this is the main thing facing Canada, surely we should have the information. So they're saying, we should have all, doc- so there, it reads all documentation concerning the approval process and information provided to the regulatory agencies by the manufacturers should be made publicly available. So don't hide this, don't <clears throat> show us what was submitted to you to justify these approvals, make that public. That's, that's their next recommendation. And then they're saying legislation should be developed or amended to prevent the elimination of the legal requirements to prove that a new food or drug is objectively safe and that the efficacy of the drug is objectively proven. So, you know, remember how we had the law tweaked so that this could happen. They're saying the law should be strengthened to make sure that it can't happen. Like let's not just in the regulations, let's put in the Food and Drug Act, these requirements to you know substantially prove safety and substantially prove efficacy because regulations as we learned during the COVID pandemic can be um changed very easily by the government Mm -hmm. and the media doesn't even notice but you know an amendment to uh, the food and drug act would be noticed because it would have to march through parliament There uh, have a further recommendation. The requirement for the regulatory board to carry out a risk benefit analysis for any and all new drugs under consideration for approval should be codified into law. Written minimum requirements for such a review are to be established. The final decisions should be made on the basis of citizen health considerations, not political motivations. The result of the risk benefit must be made public. So remember, I told you under our drug regulations, the regular ones, you have to prove safety, you have to prove efficacy, it's not actually a requirement that's written into our drug approval process, that it has to be shown the benefits outweigh the risks. It's just an implied condition because of some international law obligations. And arguably, if if you know, the Minister was to approve a drug, knowing that the risks outweigh the benefits. Uh, likely that would be committing criminal negligence under a criminal code i think that would be section 216 or 218 it's 218 so um yeah but the the commissioners are saying let's write this in and let's have a specific standard for this to uh, to work towards then as a a next condition the commissioners are recommending the current relationship between licensing fees and the overall budget provided to the drug approval agency must be examined and revised to prevent undue financial influence being extended on the approval agency from phar- pharmaceutical companies. So I think I need to explain a bit of background there. <clears throat> um, when the Maoruni government was in office in the early 90s, they came in a, um, for all regulatory areas, this idea of cost recovery, where you would charge the regulatory, regulated industry fees for things like product licensing and established licenses and and the like. And, but that's created a conflict of interest. So we're now in the area of, of Health Canada regulation over the pharmaceutical industry. We're in the situation where most of Health Canada's budget comes from the fees they charge the pharmacy pharmaceutical companies i've seen you know a lot of internal health canada communications and documents where they refer to the pharmaceutical companies as their clients if they stopped approving these drugs and the pharmaceutical companies stopped applying they'd lose their jobs like it's a huge conflict of interest so it may work in other regulatory agency or areas But when we're talking about human health, it creates a huge conflict of interest and the commissioners are calling on a review on that process and mechanisms being in place so that there's not undue influence. So, and then number nine or number eight rather, legislation must be included or revised, which reestablishes Canada's approval agency as independent or I'm sorry, as an independent fact-based agency without reliance on approval um, or approval of agencies from outside Canada. So, I, you know, they're referring there to Health Canada being influenced by dictates from outside bodies, such as the World Health Organization, which is pretty interesting one. And then, then they're also saying investigate any perceived or existing conflicts of interest that may exist between senior staff of the Food and Drug Approval Agency in Canada and pharmaceutical manufacturers. This may extend to a prescribed time limit prohibition of government agency staff from leaving government service for positions with the pharmaceutical manufacturers. Um, There's less information on this in Canada than the US, but there's evidence in the US that, you know, senior FDA um, officials, you know, will leave the FDA and then get cushy jobs in the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, with the implication being that that's a reward for service. Now, <clears throat> I should you know, perhaps bring to your audience's attention uh, what happened with Dr. Shiv Chopra, who was a drug approval scientist for Health Canada. Now, Dr. Chopra is now deceased, but he had been a drug approval scientist at Health Canada for 30 years. For a period of time, he ran the uh, the entire department that approved veterinary drugs, but he was primarily involved in the human drug approval process and he became a whistleblower and he forced the senate to call him and four other drug approval scientists as witnesses on basically health canada corruption and one of those drug approval scientists dr margaret hayden gave an interview to the cbc after her testimony and chris it was bone chilling She basically explained, so this is a drug approval scientist. What's her name again? Dr. Margaret Hayden. Okay. So she is a drug approval scientist. So her job is to, is safety proven? Is efficacy proven? Is this a good idea? Do the benefits outweigh the risks? And she basically explained to the CBC that after you've been at Health Canada for a while as a drug approval scientist, you learn how the senior management is going to get around your recommendation not to approve a drug now let that sink in for a second so we have a drug approval scientist whose job if a drug isn't safe and isn't effective or you know the benefits don't outweigh the risks this person's job is to say we shouldn't approve this drug but after you know you you've been in this job for a while, you learn how when you do that, when you recommend you know within Health Canada that a drug not be approved, you learn how your decision's going to get a runaround, and it's brilliant, Chris. It's brilliant because nobody can be liable. you know if we you know if we assume, which is likely a safe assumption that the drug isn't safe or isn't effective, if Health Canada's only own drug approval scientists don't think it is. Um, and that approval is likely a bad idea. This is really clever how they avoid liability. So senior management who she explains are seldom doctors or scientists, they will appoint a panel of outside experts. So we've had a, the Health Canada drug approval scientist says, don't approve this drug. The management of Health Canada then appro- appoints a panel of outside experts and the panel of outside experts then recommend that the drug be approved, but you don't know who voted for it, it's just the panel. So there's no liability there. And then the management based on the recommendation of the panel of outside experts then approves the drug that Health Canada's own scientists said don't approve. And then the management can't be liable because they're just relying on the recommendation of senior management and it's brilliant. So that's how Health Canada, at least according to Dr. Margaret Hayden, gets around its own internal drug approval scientists to get drugs that should not be approved, according to their scientists, approved. It's brilliant. Doesn't sound like it's to our benefit. Oh, no, I didn't say that. I just said it's brilliant. No, no. Yeah, yeah. I was. Being but, you know, we're talking about conflict of interest, and that really suggests a strong conflict of interest. Because why would Health Canada management that she explains are not doctors or scientists? Basically, they're not qualified to second guess the Health Canada drug approval specialists. Why would you why would you do a runaround your own internal specialists if there wasn't something in it for you? Like it makes no sense to me. I think people really I got to start paying attention to some of this stuff because a lot
1: of these things, Sean, I, I had no idea. I mean, I knew there was something wrong. I knew that we had to change things. Um, people were being harmed, but really some of the things that were uncovered, like through, from, from the NCI and, and work that you've done in the past. Um, it's almost, it's very difficult to digest. It's almost, it's almost impossible for me to believe that these things could happen in this country. But then again, I mean, TV shows are based on something, right?
2: It, it's spooky how sometimes, you know, our entertainment is, is so accurate. But, you know, Chris, our drug approval process is so off the rails and so not in the, the public interest. But, and you know, I'll explain something, you know, particularly egregious in a second. But if you read the Food and Drug Act and regulations you'll probably be surprised to learn that nowhere in there is health Canada charged with protecting our health or getting good health outcomes, or even acting in the public interest. There, there's, there's no obligation on health Canada to act in the public interest or protect our health or any of that. Oh Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. In fact, um, our drug regulations, and I'm thankful for, um, Alan Castles, who is a drug approval expert who testified at the NCI in Vancouver. And I actually called him as a witness and he's up there testifying and he's explaining. And so anyone can go to the NCI and watch his testimony. He's explaining that our drug regulations are there to protect intellectual property rights. They're not there to protect health. And I could have stopped right there walked over and given them a big hug because I've been lecturing about that for years that you know our drug approval process, our drug regulations are not there for good health outcomes. They're to protect intellectual property rights. And here's how the game works is if you want to treat a serious condition in Canada, you have to go through this new drug approval process that the COVID-19 vaccines were exempted from. This process um, is designed for novel chemicals that have never been introduced in the human body before. So, you know, you're doing, you're doing animal studies on toxicity. You're doing animal studies um, basically, you know, to find out, try and determine, well, at what doses does it seem that the drug is having a pharmacological effect? You're doing low number human trials based on, you know, your animal toxicity studies. And then, you know, eventually you're doing large scale double blind clinical trials. And the last time I had a drug approval expert under oath and I asked, you know, give me an average cost of the new drug approval process. That person just blurted out a billion dollars. Now you can do it for well under billion dollars, yeah. You can do it for well under a billion dollars for many drugs, but you're in the hundreds of millions. And so, in the lifetime of anyone watching this, there has only been one drug go through the new drug approval process that didn't have a patent, and that drug was sponsored by government. So, you see, let's say, Chris, you and I developed a you know, blockbuster chemical pharmaceutical drug and we had a patent on it, well, we'd be willing to spend, you know, the hundreds of millions of dollars or we could rent, raise the venture capital for that because we have a patent. And so if we succeed in getting through the process, no one can compete with us because we have a patent. So unless we they paid us for licensing, they, they can't compete with us until the patent runs out. I I remember when Viagra was approved, you know, for erectile dysfunction, the advertising in the United States was so effective, we couldn't have direct advertising in Canada. But back then, this is pre, you know, social media, people watched cable TV, which was largely American.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: So we're seeing all these Viagra ads. Well, I mean, a pill, of it was in the mainstream media. There were stories about it. Like a Viagra pill might've cost like 20 bucks, which, you know, that'd be the equivalent of like 100 or 150 bucks today. Like it was like, Pfizer was charging a fortune for these pills because they were in demand and no one could compete. But now that the patents expired, the, the generic drug name for Viagra is Sedenophel, and anyone can make Sildenafil. So, you know, your generic drug makers, they make Sildenafil, and so there's competition and Pfizer can't charge a high price, So, but while they could. So you only go through the process when you have a patent because you can't spend all that money and then have anyone compete with you. Cause once you've gone through the process, everyone can just piggyback and say, well, I'm just going to make exactly what they make. You've licensed mm-hmm. them and I'm just relying on their application. It doesn't cost you hardly anything, you know, except for proving your manufacturing processes and purity and the like, right? But that's easy. So, um, so we've structured our drug laws. So it's functionally illegal in Canada to treat any serious condition with anything but a chemical pharmaceutical drug that had a patent when it went through the process. Now, that's not good health policy. You're presuming that the, the most effective treatments for serious health conditions, which include chronic conditions, are novel chemicals with patents on them. And that that's absolutely absurd. So this we is know a- that-
1: Sorry, sorry to interrupt. This is a really good segue into uh, the other part of what I wanted to talk to you about. But I also wanted to point out that uh, I've had Dr. Peter McCullough on the podcast a couple of times and Dr. McCullough, uh, he brought up something really interesting in that the United States has specific laws that say you it's, it's actually illegal to treat disease or chronic conditions with anything other than a pharmaceutical. Like OK, not just,
2: we don't we don't spell it out so clearly. We just—it's the effect of our law. We'd be more honest if we did—if we spelled it out clearly. We just make
1: it so uneconomical to do that
2: that they well, don't, it, you don't do it. It's—it's it's all by design. I mean, as a constitutional lawyer, if I want to prove—you know—get a law struck down for being unconstitutional, I can do it in two ways. I can. I I can look at the text of the law and if the text is discriminatory, then, you know, that's an easy one, but it's very seldom that if the government wants to discriminate against somebody, for example, that they're actually going to have put that out in the open. So let's say, and this isn't, you know, this, this would actually be maybe a reasonable assumption in today's world, but let's say the government of Canada wanted to discriminate against Caucasian men by making it disenfranchising them from voting. Well, they're not going to write a law saying Caucasian men can't participate in voting because they know that's going to be struck down. So what they'll do is, is well, they'll pass a law saying, you know, we're granting the minister powers to make regulations to, you know, privilege disenfranchised groups for, to be able to vote and, you know, and to make the voting process fair and equitable so no racial group has a disproportionate amount of the vote so it'd be something that on the face of it doesn't really seem unconstitutional or even objectionable You might oh wow this is these are great purposes and then they pass regulations which just make it almost impossible for Caucasian men to vote well if I can show the court the effect is unconstitutional you know then I get the law struck down so and and that's what we're facing with our drug regulations on the face it doesn't say you can only treat serious health conditions with chemical pharmaceutical drugs that had a patent. But that's the clear effect. And it's all by design. It's it's not a mistake at all.
1: So what we discussed regarding the approval process for certain drugs, specifically the warp speeded uh, approval for the COVID-19 vaccine, when you put it in the perspective of the hundreds of billions of dollars that have changed hands, all of the sudden, some of these things start to make a little bit of sense.
2: Yeah, well, you know, Chris, like let's say, you know, the government got caught up in all this hysteria and so really came out with this outrageous test in the middle of the hysteria because they, you know, honestly believed you know, even if we're taking a chance, it's a, it's a reasonable chance. Let's, let's push this vaccine through, you know, cross our fingers and hope it, hope it works, you know, because they're all – but that doesn't, that doesn't justify us having that test there today and us not requiring the COVID-19 vaccines to now prove that they're safe and now prove that they're effective. We're not in a crisis right now. We haven't been in a crisis for a year and a half. I mean, if after the, the convoy well. so so why aren't the covid nineteen vaccines being required to go through the safety and efficacy you know tests that every other pharmaceutical drug for a serious health condition has to go through?
1: Well, the courts are already ruling that they're safe and effective because the government's
2: said they're safe and effective. So what more evidence do we need, right? well, that's that's true, you know. So because I know I trust Health Canada. I can't oh, say yeah. that without, I, trust I can't I say that without that. smiling. So, you know, the whole drug approval process is, is like before COVID and before even this more outrageous thing, you know, was was the biggest fraud I'd ever seen perpetrated on on the Canadian public. Like, you know, I, I was involved in a, a Health Canada civil action and I'm Health Canada's hired this expert who is a psychiatrist. Who ran a company that just got psychiatric drugs through this new drug approval process. And yeah, you know, I was cross-examining this, this witness for days. And at, at one point, this guy actually starts complaining to me. It was it was just it was amazing. I'm still haunted by it. He starts complaining, saying, you know, when when you know we get now, we get hired to get a new antidepressant through the new drug approval process we've got to give Health Canada two sizable double-blind clinical trials showing that the drug works. And when he says that, what he means is this, you know, showing there's this enough of a statistical separation between the placebo group and the drug group, you know, that we we can pretend that means the drug actually worked, you know, in clinical trials that are totally structured to try and get this separation. But he's saying, you know, we've got to provide two of these trials but right out of the gate, we run eight. So to get a new antidepressant approved, if his company's hired right out of the gate, they just run eight double-blind clinical trials to get those two that show it work. The other six can show the sugar pill works more than the chemical drug, but that doesn't matter. They don't have to show those to Health Canada. They don't have to submit those with their drug submission. Um, <clears throat> well, that's a complete fraud, Chris. You know, if we wanted a fair drug approval process that would protect Canadians for chemical pharmaceutical drugs, the drug companies wouldn't be allowed to run the drug approval trials. They could run their own clinical trials to go, okay, we think this is going to get through. But what, they w- what we would do is, is we would have the regulatory body either design or hire somebody to design the study design for the double-blind clinical trials publish that for public comment, so it's it's fair and transparent, and then independently hire independent, a couple of independent groups to then run separate clinical trials to see if the drug is safe and see if it's effective. You wouldn't let the pharmaceutical company design the trial and you wouldn't let the pharmaceutical company run the trial. And then you would, you know, but then likely we wouldn't get hardly any of these drugs approved and the whole process would collapse because Health Canada wouldn't be collecting fees from the drug companies. But we'd have better health outcomes.
1: But it's not about health outcomes.
2: No, no. And if I can share with you another funny story. So I was running a uh, you know Health Canada trial in <coughs> Calgary. This would be like in the probably around 2005, 2006. And it's before I had learned Right. I've only been doing this for about a decade at the time, and I, I didn't understand it yet. And so I have a health candidate inspector on the stand and I'm trying to set her up for a question that's coming down the road. So I've got a series of questions that I'm expecting her to answer. Yes, to everyone. And I'm slowly with each yes, constructing a box for my final question that she then won't be able to get out of <clears throat> And one of my, you know, lead up questions was something like, you know, as a Health Canada inspector, you're there to protect our health. And because I didn't understand yet, I'm expecting her to say yes. You know, like, of course, she's going to agree that as a Health Canada inspector, that she's there to protect our health. But she wouldn't agree. And I, you know, <clears throat> I try and circle around and circle around. I can't get her to agree. And finally, and now remember, she's under oath. So she has to tell the truth finally she explains it to me and like after she did it's like well of course why didn't i see this but she explained to me no as a you know health canada and her as a health canada inspector are not there to protect our health they are there to enforce the food and drug act and regulations of course they are they're the police they're there to enforce the food and drug act and regulations they're not there to protect their health they're under no legal obligation as I say you will not see anywhere in the Food and Drug Act and regulations any onus on Health Canada any obligation to protect their health it's not even mentioned hmm
1: that brings up the question of who's responsible for our health and I believe that matters of health should be our individual sovereign jurisdiction and before i elaborate on that um i just want to have a quick recap because we're already two hours and 15 minutes and i think we could easily go another two hours yeah we could
2: i think your audience wants to go to bed but it's but but we have to we have to have this discussion on sovereignty over the own body because you're hitting something really important here i'm i'm going to touch on that real quickly Um,
1: but, and and it's going to be uh, it'll I'll call it an intro. It'll be a um, uh, what do you call it? What are those things in the movies called? Where the trailer. Do do? It'll be a trailer for the yep. next for the next podcast we're going to do. But before that, so Sean Buckley, Buckley is a lawyer, and he is uh, the the what would you call yourself? The chair chairperson of the NCI? No, 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 no. Uh, so
2: um, yeah. So I mean, I'm. I'm just a volunteer. I, I ended up being in the role of lead counsel. So, you know, I called the majority of the witnesses. Um, But no, I'm not a commissioner and I'm not the administrator. I'm, you know, just one of the people that have been willing to, to plug along and and be heavily involved. So, and and what a, and what an honor it's been like, Chris, even getting to know you and, and visiting with you and your wife last night was just lovely. Cause it's, You'll I think you'll agree with me, it's the people that we meet along this journey. Yep, definitely that that really are the most special part of
1: it. Yeah. There's people that think I got rich through all throughout all this. And you know what? I did. I got ridiculously rich. I'm still not wealthy and I have no money, but I'm rich because of all the people around me that I've met that have been rich in my life. Anyway. So Sean is the lead counsel for the National Citizens Inquiry. And I invited him on the podcast today because uh, the commissioners and Sean have a very clear message to all of, well, I guess all of the governments across this country as to what they should be doing uh, uh, from what they've determined from the testimony that they heard at the National Citizens Inquiry. So Sean, one more time. What is the... I was going to say number one thing. It's a number one thing for me, but I think it was point number two. What's point number two that every government in this province or in this uh, country should know that we should be doing right now, immediately, resulting from the NCI?
2: So the the commissioners of the National Citizens Inquiry have made the recommendation that all COVID-19 vaccination be stopped immediately and that it be stopped until... You know the vaccines are proven to be safe and proven to be effective and that they're proven that the benefits would outweigh the risks so they're calling for a full stop of any further vaccinations in canada by COVID 19 vaccines approved under this um substituted test
1: well i sure hope they're listening and i'm going to do everything i can to get that message to everybody that i can with everything that's been said tonight uh, it's become very apparent that we need to start exercising sovereignty over our own health, and unfortunately, that's also being threatened uh, at by the federal government right now. Do you want to maybe
2: give a little prelude
1: yeah. as to what our oh, next so conversation is going to be? This will be a
2: teaser for you know for another show. So, <clears throat> Health Canada is currently, and the government of Canada are currently moving to harmonize how we regulate natural health products with chemical drugs and this is all part of an international harmonization of drug regulation and it's called the self-care framework and when it's fully implemented we're basically going to lose the majority i would say 80% of the natural health products that we currently have and it's just it's going to lead to deaths and it's going to lead to suffering. And this is all part of this privileging of chemical pharmaceutical drugs. So it's, it's something that your viewers need to be aware of and need to get involved in resisting. I mean, we're, we've are we got a full on war on our hands.
1: Absolutely, so Sean, why is it dangerous that the government is going to regulate natural health products? Isn't that good? Because obviously Health Canada is
2: interested in our health, are they not? Now, it's more convincing if you don't smile when you say that. I can't help it. <laughs> no, I know. I, I can't either. So uh, <laughs> I, I just, I, I can't. You know, like, it, even when I hear the term Health Canada now, like I'm fully, you know, in George Orwell 1984 newspeak, Like, you know, where the ministry, of the propaganda ministry in 1984 was called the Ministry of Truth. Mm-hmm. and you know health canada i think of as death canada but we call them health canada right or sickness canada they i but i think of them as death canada because i've had files where they they've killed a large number of people by restricting access to even a single natural health product for a, a limited amount of time so um <clears throat> when you say you know is well isn't regulation good it's interesting and and you know i i don't want to give away the next show but it's interesting that for most of your life natural health products have been completely unregulated so we had no regulations until 2004 where we moved halfway into a chemical drug model and even after those regulations came into force it took us about 12 years for most of the industry to comply which is only just a handful of years ago so even the idea that we would regulate natural health products it's brand new they were unregulated for most of my life, and it's just been a handful of years that they've been regulated. So when all of us have walked into health food stores or gone to a naturopathic doctor or the like and got products, they were unregulated. And you know what? They're unregulated in the United States. So we classify them as drugs, they classify them as foods. We deem them by law to be dangerous and you have to overcome that hurdle by proving they're safe. In the United States, by law, they're deemed to be safe. In the United States, you don't need government pre-approval to sell a natural product for a therapeutic purpose, but because we moved into a halfway into a drug model, we do. Like, you know, is it 2,000 years we've been using ginger tea to treat nausea? Do we, after 2,000 years, do we need government approval now to, do we need to run a double-blind clinical trial to show that- Well, of course, because we need to know that it's safe and effective before we use it. in fact, we have to, yeah, because, it, you know, there was a chemical drug that treated nausea during uh, pregnancy. Apparently, it was quite effective at treating nausea called thalidomide. And we would require thalidomide to go through a double-blind clinical trial because we've never introduced it or hadn't introduced it into the human population before. So surely, it doesn't matter that we've been drinking ginger tea for thousands of years, We should have to subject it to the same standard levels of evidence as the dangerous chemicals and go through a new drug approval process, which means we will never have ginger tea for nausea. You'd never be able to tell anyone. You can sell it for tea in the grocery store section, but you can't put on the box, you know, traditionally used to treat nausea because you haven't run that double blind clinical trial. Because who's going to spend the money? We can do that we've, designed no our system. Patent, it? we've designed our system to require this, it, and it's just madness. But that's for the next show. Yes, that is the next show. And
1: uh, this is a good comment. Check out the Natural Health Products Protection Association. Sean and his amazing team are working hard to help Canadians protect their access to natural health products. Wake up, folks. Soon we'll all be gone. Chemical drugs. Only is the end result.
2: And the NHPPA uh, website is just nhppa.org. And if you go to that website, um, we have a subscribe button and subscribe to our newsletter. We don't send a lot out, but when we're launching a campaign in this, it's the way that we connect with you and get you involved.
1: Perfect. Well, you know, I I can actually see a few more hours of uh, podcasting because this is a very, very in-depth, uh, these are both very in-depth subjects and they're they're evolving right as we speak, right? I mean, these things are, they're going on around us. And I think that it's important that we pay attention to these things and make sure that the politicians know we're paying attention because if we don't, as we've seen before, uh, we give them a finger and they take our whole hand.
2: And mm-hmm. we certainly
1: don't want that to continue with matters of our health, which we should be uh, sovereign over our own choices. With so uh Sean, thank you very much for spending two and a half hours uh with me on this podcast. It's this hard, hard to believe it it was that long, but yeah, well, <laughs> a conversation. Conversation. you know, I, I always say I'm gonna I go into these things and I'm gonna try and keep it to an hour, try and keep it to an hour, but there's no way there's there's so much to talk about, so much information. But what I am gonna do is I'm gonna cut up some of this this uh, podcast and I'm gonna turn it into 20-second TikToks, just really um, important points that we've talked about. So at least people can can hear that. And then they'll be like, well, what do you mean Health Canada is not about health? We should maybe look into this, right? And so, mm-hmm. that, so that's what we'll do. We'll chop it up into more digestible bits. For those of you, of you that have stuck with us for the entire podcast, thank you very much. Sorry that you don't have a life, but I don't either. Um, and I will <laughs> say that I'm happy that you're part of mine now. So uh, thanks for making it worthwhile. And uh, I will... Sean and I will talk and we'll schedule our next podcast, which we'll be talking about natural health products, why it's important that we protect our access to them, what the federal government is trying to do to remove access to them. And, you know, maybe we'll kind of kick the can around as to why they're doing that. That's always fun. No, to do as well.
2: Chris, if I can just say one more thing and I look forward to that show, but you of know, course, my wife, my wife will uh, scold me if I don't, you know, talk about a national citizens inquiry initiative, because you know. Remember, we all have to start doing things. And what we found is 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 the national citizens inquiry. And and for those of you who watched, you know what I'm talking about. But if you haven't watched, when you do watch, you see what I'm talking about. It's it's disarming. Um, it's people on the other side of the conversation that would you know, never watch a Dr. McCullough video, you know, on Alex Jones or USA Watchdog. We'll watch him on the National Citizens Inquiry because he swears to tell the truth and he's questioned by a lawyer and then, you know, questioned by commissioners. And there's something about that format that people who are resistant to a different COVID narrative will watch and and if somebody, if we can get people watching just three witnesses, they can pick whichever three they want out of the over 300, you know, Chris included. And they're hooked. Like it's almost like, you know, you got hooked on a, a new TV drama because it makes you cry. It makes you laugh and everything in between. So the, so the NCIS, this initiative that's easy for you to get other people watching the NCI. And you go to our site, look for the, this is Canada initiative and you download the PDF for this brochure. Um, Like a lot of people like this one, we just went to Staples and had them print it off on the right size um, and in color, but it prints well in black and white and print out 156 of them because Canada is 156 years old and drop them off in your neighborhood. And if that's too embarrassing because you don't want your neighbor saying, hey, you know, what are you doing? Well, drop them off in some other neighborhood, but drop off 156 And you might get 20 people watching the NCI and 10 of those people understanding that like waking up basically. And then that influences their whole circle. And it's just a very simple way to get people involved so and get people woken up and it doesn't affect you. And, you know, Chris, you're in a small town. There's a group in Saskatchewan that like, I think about 10 or 11 towns, they made sure that every single mailbox in the town. I mean, they just basically got the post office to agree to stuff them. But everyone in about 10 Saskatchewan towns got these, which is pretty exciting. And as I say, it, it's easy to do and it's a way to be involved. And we all have to do that. So thank you for letting me share that.
1: No, that's, that's a great idea. I'll do that here. I love, uh, should... no, I'm not going to say that. Yeah, I'll say it. I love pissing people off. I find, I find it entertaining, but for a good cause. Anyway, so I'll do that. And I only say that because there are some people that really don't want to know this information. They're happy to just completely put the blinders on, plug their ears and move along because, uh, you know, I don't know, I, I wouldn't want to be some of the people that push this and have to reconcile what I did with what the truth is, you know? So I, I, I get well, why some people don't want to
2: know. There, there's that too. and And we, you know, I mean, remember that we all, we all hear what we already believe, and we all see like we basically just our human nature is this: we filter out information that disagrees with what we believe to be true, um, <clears throat> in every area of our life, let alone COVID. And then when we've just been through this experience, where we actually shamed and witnessed people who disagreed being shamed, while we're in this, you know, kind of cancel culture and woke culture. Where we no longer are allowed to have a voice and express dissent i think that our psychological tendency to not even see information that disagrees with what we already believe is even stronger and you can imagine how difficult it it must be for these people because they're seeing there's they're seeing young people die in their sleep they're seeing young people die of heart disease they're, they will know friends that, you know, died suddenly or had these turbo cancers and family members and they don't understand what's happening. And you'll hear it in conversation like, you know, I, I don't know why all these people are dying in that. You know, that's we really need to be sympathetic to that because, you know, they're in they were fooled. I mean, this was a military grade psyops. We had, at the NCI, we had. Dr. Peter Malone testifying, and, and a lot of your viewers will know Dr. Malone as one of the persons that you know, was instrumental in actually developing this mRNA technology that was used in, in most of these COVID vaccines. But we didn't call him to testify about that. He's also got a lot of expertise into what's called fifth generational warfare. And while he was testifying, he he brought up Canadian mainstream news articles. Listen to this. Canadian mainstream news articles about the Canadian military running a military-grade PSYOPs on the Canadian population. Now, how can it be that Canadians reading in the mainstream media about military-grade PSYOPs being run against them by the military that they're not going, oh, what's that all about? But, I mean, this was a military-grade PSYOPs operation. and, And we we can't fault people for being fooled. Like we really need to be sympathetic to the fact that they were fooled, but, and we were all fooled at first. Well, I'd like to say we won't be fooled again, but
1: that's probably not true. I'm I'm sure it's gonna happen again, but we should try and prepare not to be. And I should prepare for tomorrow by getting some sleep because uh, (laughs) as you know, Sean, one of the four pillars of health is sleep. And if we paid more attention to the four pillars of health, uh, nutrition, sleep, exercise, what's the other one? I'm watching the NCI. I I watching think the NCI. If, yeah. we paid, if we paid more attention to those <laughs> uh, and relied, we would possibly have to rely on pharmaceuticals to intervene in our lives uh, much less. So I better get some sleep. But thanks again, Sean, for coming oh, on. Chris, just an honor. Yeah, and yeah, and likewise, um, you know, you've done a tremendous amount of work. You've done a tremendous service for the people of this this country and all across the globe. Because, as uh, you've explained, what the NCI is doing is going to be instrumental to what is happening across the world. Because this information is going to be searchable and and cataloged, and uh, it's going to support people in their endeavor to find the truth. So, thank you very much for that. Um, you mentioned getting involved in doing things. So, folks, just so you know. I always say that I want to talk about solutions. Sean and I have talked about a lot of problems. He mentioned some solutions. Um, for me, I believe that part of the solution is getting this information out there, getting people to the point where they know what's going on and they know what they're going to ask for. The second part of it will be a political solution because as far as I can tell, we need some legislation that protects us from this happening ever again. We need some legislation that is to the benefit of society, not to the benefit of somebody trying to profit off drugs, not to the benefit of politicians. It needs to benefit us. Uh, And coincidentally, we have an opportunity in Alberta to get some of that done. We have a government that's receptive to the idea of freedom. And, uh, you know, they're, they're saying the right things. So I'm also involved in that. And I'm doing what I recommended we all do from the very beginning, which is show up, be counted, use your voice, and uh, if we bring enough people and we just simply show up, we can change these things, and you know, it can be it can be to our benefit and not to the tyrant's benefit, so that's that's where I'm at with solutions, and if you guys have any other ideas, please feel free to put them up in the comments, I'll do my best to answer, and maybe Sean, if you have time, you can go through and have a look at some of them and answer a couple of questions as well, because I was very bad at putting the questions up, we got talking too much, so but we can get it after. And it's the 30th. Why don't we say our uh, our next one, next podcast on the topic of health and wellness and the uh, uh, natural health protection or product protection. Why don't we do that next week? Maybe Friday or Actually, Saturday. Actually,
2: I'm in BC next week for Circuit Court. So could ah. we do it the following week? Yeah, we sure can. Yep. So what day? Saturday
1: again? Let's shoot for Saturday. However, uh, another thing that I have coming up is uh, the Alberta Prosperity Project is launching what we're calling the Ambassadors for Independence Tour. So uh, Dr. Dennis Modrie, Corey Morgan from the Western Standard, and I are going to be traveling all over the province, and I seriously mean from one end to the other, um, and we're going to be speaking to people about how to be uh, good and effective ambassadors for Alberta independence and Alberta sovereignty. So I've got, uh, I think our events coordinator has like 14 events or something like that on the books in the next few months or a couple months here. So, but we'll work around it. I'm I'm always happy to do it.
2: That sounds like a lot of traveling. So, do you want to book October 14th then?
1: Uh, it,
2: it does not have to be a Saturday
1: night. Let's let's tentatively book it for the 14th. And I'll get back to you as soon as I can. I'll check the schedule that Vicky's done up and I'll uh, I'll find out if it'll work. I think it will because I think there's an event that day, but I should be done in time to do a podcast with you after. So let's just pencil it in for
2: that date. Okay. Eight o'clock.
1: All right. Eight o'clock. Eight o'clock. October. It can
2: be earlier. I'm just, I'm following your lead here. So
1: yeah, eight o'clock is perfect. Right on. Well, thanks again, Sean. Thanks everybody for watching. Um, We'll see you on the next one. Good night. Good night.